The following program is a presentation of Grace Communion International and Grace Communion Seminary and is made possible by generous donations from viewers like you. On this episode of You're Included, author and theologian Dr. Roger Newell discusses Mary's response to Gabriel's announcement to her, as well as the importance of the Incarnation. Our host is Dr. J. Michael Fazell. We really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. As I understand it, you uh, were the first American student that James Torrance had in doctoral studies in Aberdeen. That's right. It was uh, 1978. I arrived uh, just a little bit after uh, Professor Torrance came uh, the previous semester to be the professor there after having been the uh, been teacher uh, in Edinburgh, Scotland for quite a few years. So it was uh, it was a great uh, opportunity, a privilege just to be his as one of his early students and to uh, get to attend his seminars and to get to know him as a as a mentor and as a as a friend. It was a great great privilege. You mentioned that he instilled a passion in you for pastoral ministry. Well, that's right. I, I mean, at the time I went there, I was thinking maybe I uh, wasn't sure if I was going to do pastoral work or, or just pursue teaching. But having studied with um, with Professor Torrance, I became uh, more uh, more aware of a of a call that I really did want to pastor and work in. And uh, he inspired in me a sense that uh, really the the parish, the past, the local church is is the uh, the laboratory. Where, where people come to know the living God and, and we become participants in that. And to be in, roll up your sleeves and do that was, was very, very uh, significant. And I wanted to, to do that. So you spent uh, a better part of, or a little over a decade in pastoral ministry before you uh, yeah. began teaching at George Fox. 13 years total, yeah. And that, that would bring to the theology a real practical, uh, meaningful kind of tone that uh, we don't often see in theology. Well, uh, again, I was also fortunate in uh, having studied with Ray Anderson at Fuller Seminary, and uh, Ray had made it uh, important uh, and made and modeled for this the same kind of connection and integration between pastoral care and pastoral work and and the best theology one can articulate. We've had the privilege of having Ray on this program two or three times. In, in uh, some of the writings that you've done, you've written about the encounter between Mary and the angel Gabriel. And Gabriel announces to Mary what's going to happen to her, and then, and then her response to that. Uh, and then you've tied that in with our response. Could you talk mm -hmm. about that? The reason I started in with uh, the story of Mary as a way of trying to understand how a person responds to God is because, in a way, she's the first one in the church who has the word spoken to her by the angel. By, by, uh, she's the the one uh, through whom the word becomes incarnate, and uh, so her response then becomes, in some ways, a, a a way to begin to understand what it means and how you and I can learn uh, many years later to begin to respond. So she is a is a, a great example to see what what is actually going on in learning how to respond to God. So I wanted to start with her. Now one of the things that we see 
with Mary that, that you point out is that her response isn't just some uh, ideal, uh, high, moral, Christian, so-called godly response, as it were, as, as we think of that sometimes. She's a little worried about it, up, up, upset mm. it to some mm. degree. Uh, there are all kinds of questions she has. It's a very human uh, response. Yes, if we take the halo prearranged, you know, off her, then that's uh, very important to realize that she, as the text says very clearly, was, uh, was deeply troubled. Here she is, a young woman going to her prayers as a, as a devout young uh, Jewish maiden, and uh, what she got in her prayers that day was not what she was looking forward to, and it wasn't expected, and, and the text is quite clear that she was deeply troubled by what happened, and she was also afraid. And so the, uh, the text, if they wanted to try to make her into some kind of a, a uh, idealized portrait, they, they would have uh, airbrushed that very human response away. But rather instead, it, you know, there it is, and, and this is how she responded. And it's part of her journey to, to uh, then saying, I'm the handmaid of the Lord, and, and let it be to me according to your will. But uh, it's all included, and that's uh, an important key, an important thing for us to remember that there, there's no perfect way to respond to God except to be uh, genuine and have uh, and to be honest before God. And if I'm, if there's fear, if there's uh, trouble, things going on in my life, that's part of what I uh, openly and honestly bring to the table, and God accepts that. And in preaching and and teaching it, that as we tend to hear admonition that jumps us right to the very end, the hmm. let it be unto me as the Lord has spoken, and without even giving acknowledgement to the fact that there's a journey to get to that spot, a very human journey, and the honesty that you spoke of being a part of what we are able to uh, have as a part of our response at, at admitting to God, dealing with God, like Jacob did, this mm. kind of wrestling with God mm. over issues, um, is a very real part of the Christian experience. As you've uh, written, it, that has become a bit lost in uh, some of the liturgy and some of the teaching and preaching that, that we hear today. Well, yes, I, I suppose it's inevitable that we jump too quickly to the, the last word and we don't always listen to the next to last word to, to uh, we're in a little bit of a hurry to the happy ending maybe or the perfection. And, and so the, the real journey that people have to go on sometimes is um, telescoped or, uh, or narrowed uh, because we, I, and maybe that's part of the fact that in our culture everybody's in a hurry too. And the pastor's in a hurry, he wants to have perfected saints. He doesn't yeah. want, these sinners are very messy to deal with. And mm. if you could clean them up more quickly, uh, maybe everybody's job would be a little easier. But, but for whatever reason, that doesn't seem to be how, how we are formed. And so, but to try to um, prematurely, um, prematurely uh, or shrink wrap Christians and make them uh, saints in a way that's artificial or, you know, hothouse plants, doesn't seem to doesn't seem to work, and and uh, then we have to begin to unlearn the the f maybe the false responses we thought we, we begin to make to God because we think everybody expects them of us, but they aren't 
from our own hearts. And so we have to somehow um, sometimes unlearn those uh, manufactured approaches and learn again to respond to God genuinely, as, as did Mary. You've talked about the ought and the, the should. Uh, how did you put that? Uh, well, the danger is that um, in, in the urgency or the anxiety sometimes uh, we preachers have is to get people to the bottom line is that we, we can pressurize people uh, to make the response we think they ought to make and uh, to maybe lack a little confidence that God is going to, to do what he intends to do. And so we, we feel like we have to pull the strings a little bit. And so we, we can put pressure on people. And I, I, I think I said, uh, uh, as a result, uh, 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 instead of letting people respond to, to the, the good news, um, we, we uh, have this twist. And sometimes uh, we, we turn the good news into should news. And, and this is something that's been talked about uh, I think very perceptively by C.S. Lewis and uh, why he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. He says that one of the things he thought that was pr uh, inhibiting people from really hearing the gospel is that the, he talked about the stained glass window and Sunday school associations whereby one was told one ought to be grateful to God, one ought to be thankful. And having heard this so often, it uh, caused a person to focus on themselves and their response rather than on the object. Uh, the, the reality of God, to whom uh, which, which naturally evokes a response, and so we uh, inadvertently uh, in the church too often turn the the good news into should news, and so uh, it's not our intention, but what it means is the recipient turn, takes his eye off the source and tries to manufacture a response that we think is expected, and and that cuts off our ironically cuts off our feelings, and we our feelings freeze up. Don't we do that a lot in, in um, especially in, in worship, we try to make ourselves feel something. We're not sure exactly how we should feel, but we know it ought to be holy and it ought mm. to be sanctimonious or something. And so yeah. we, we try to uh, will ourselves into the right feeling. And as you say, our attention is totally on ourselves then instead of on the object of, of our worship. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And then the problem then is that we um, we become self-centered in our worship, either focusing on our our virtue and our you know our patting ourselves on the back and thinking well done, or we become also uh, focused on our failures and our inadequacies, and whether our self-centered response to God uh, becomes uh, inflated, congratulating ourselves, uh, self-righteous on the one hand, or we become discouraged and deflated. Um, and put ourselves down on the other. Both are, are ways of getting in the way and not being, uh, not being responsive, but, but uh, rather trying to uh, create some kind of uh, virtue in ourselves. And this, of course, always leaves us frustrated either in a negative way or a positive way. Uh, you know, the Pharisee thinking, you know, thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. Wow, I'm really good at this mm -hmm. responding to God. Or on the other hand, this, the... Uh, a person who feels like everything I do is uh, is hopeless, and I can't like Martin Luther. And uh, when he was a monk, he whatever he did wasn't good enough, and so he constantly was berating himself and and criticizing himself, and he he was uh, had made himself miserable. Uh, Jesus told a parable of, about two sons. One one responded right away with the right words by saying, hmm. um, "I go, sir." When he, his father told him to go work in the fields, and the other one swore and refused. But in the end, 
the, the, the one who responded with the wrong words is the one who did what he was asked, hmm. and the other one didn't. Right, even though he said he would, and so the words came easily, but the, the, the actions were, um, once, once the, the father looked the other way, he was nowhere to be found. So uh, it reminds us, I think, of how important uh, our response is meant to be, not just a verbal one, but with our whole hearts. And, and uh, so again, the, uh, the, the second son is a great example of somebody who uh, took him a while. At first, he let, he let his father know, or was it his father or the master? I forget. He just said, you know, I'm not doing this. But it percolated. He thought about it. And he was honest and genuine in his initial no. But as he thought about it, then he thought, you know, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to do what I was asked. And so that was, that had integrity. Uh, we have a, a fear of responding any way other than rightly. And so that contributes to wanting to look at ourselves and analyze how we're responding, how we're thinking. Sure. But aren't we freed to respond freely uh, and honestly if, if we remember that it isn't our response that matters, that Jesus has already responded for us uh, perfectly as hmm. the human who stands in for us before the Father, hmm. if we can rest in that, we don't have to worry about or think about or second guess how we're responding. Yes, I, I think the way I would put it is, um, and I say this because I've been just re once again wrestling with the whole relationship between God's um, reaching to us and coming to us and our responding to this, and I've just been rereading Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his wrestling with this issue in his uh, little book, uh, The Cost of Discipleship, mm -hmm. and he talks about the danger of, uh, of uh, cheap grace, mm -hmm. the grace that is, uh, comes without uh, any response on our part because it's all been done for us. And he mm -hmm. says this is what's wrong with Germany. He's writing in 1937 when basically fascism has taken over a country of good doctrinally Lutheran justification mm -hmm. by faith uh, Christians, and yet somehow their response is has uh, seems to have been perverted and so what do we do and so he's trying to recover a sense of of response that has integrity and so this is where i think he makes a great uh, point that grace is absolutely free it's absolutely free but it's always costly because it costs god everything it costs him sending his own son so therefore it can never be had by us by anything other than by a response of uh, a deep response of gratitude and thanksgiving that is far more than verbal. Um, Professor Torrance used to, uh, you know, bring this home, I think, in an important way when he talked about God's grace being unconditionally free, unconditional. But he says, uh, as a result, then the response is, uh, therefore, not if you're, if, but, but uh, if you believe, if you have faith, I will love you, and so on. But, but because uh, God in Christ has loved us and given us himself so freely, uh, therefore, uh, we want to respond. Uh, we, that freedom to respond is, is uh, evoked by the reality of God, not by some sense of uh, obligation on my part that is um, in order to earn merit, but as uh, a, a, the most natural way of responding to such a good gift. And it's, a, there, and it's freeing to, be, to know that our response 
is taken up by Christ in such a way that it, that it matters and that it's healed. There's so much um, of a tendency toward um, carrying unnecessary guilt mm. and uh, carrying an unnecessary burden of, of second-guessing everything we do and worrying that God might not be accepting us and mm. He's probably fed up with us and He's angry at us. But how freeing is it to know that, uh, that as we respond out of gratitude and a heart of appreciation for one who has, in fact, healed our responses and made them right, it, it seems that to me that, that when I'm thinking rightly about that, that it keeps me in a channel of, of, of rest and freedom, and, and the less I'm focused on myself and how I'm responding, hmm. the better I respond. It's when I'm focused on myself and my responses that I seem to be hitting the edges all the time and bouncing down the river instead of going down the middle. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, another way that helps me understand this better is to always be aware that my response to God is always an accompanied response. It's not, it's not initiative. It's not uh, me taking charge, it's not me uh, asserting myself, but it's learning how, uh, in, in, my, in my way, like, uh, like the, those people we read about in, in Scripture, learning to realize that my, uh, my response, whether it's uh, initial fear, initial hesitation, or initially being deeply troubled, uh, is, is accompanied. And, it's, uh, and this is the, part of the importance of the humanity of Jesus, that Jesus became human fully human and his uh, whatever response that we ever learn to make is uh, never autonomous or on our own but it's it's uh, shared with uh, with with uh, Jesus himself in in his own humanity connecting with our humanity and that's that is part of the freedom and the freeing experience of learning uh, to uh, knowing that my response is is not isolated in some kind of splendor of its own religiosity or whatever, but, but is, is uh, taken hold of and, and brought before, before God the Father by Jesus the Son. You've uh, written about Apollinarianism, or what you call functional Apollinarianism, and how it, how it um, affects our worship patterns and even contemporary music. What is, uh, could you describe Apollinarianism and then functional Apollinarianism and then how does that affect their worship patterns? Well, this is a very complicated issue in some ways, and I don't. Maybe it's uh, maybe we could get into this uh, uh, a little bit further later on. But I, what I would say now is what Apollinarianism, for our purposes, is it, it focuses on the sovereignty, or maybe say the the deity of Christ, but forgets or sets aside the the real humanity of Jesus. And when when sometimes this this affects us, uh, we then have a worship experience or we go to church in which uh, we have forgotten that Jesus is truly human and, and Christ in his humanity accompanies us in our prayers and our worship and so we uh, we actually do have a, a priest a, a priest uh, in his humanity who accompanies our worship again to the Father but if we don't have that sense of Jesus's humanity and we just have a sense of Christ's exalted uh, Lordship then we sometimes think well I've got a substitute I need to somehow uh, intercede for myself or I have to somehow, uh, or maybe my pastor has to somehow 
become the bridge. And we can in, inadvertently put all of our uh, marbles on these, these very frail humans, myself or my pastor or whoever, uh, to somehow create the connection between ourselves and God. And we end up with a functional Unitarianism in our worship and our, our prayers so and our preaching. So it's as though Jesus is, is high and exalted and we think of him that way and, and we recreate the bridge or, or the gulf yes. between humanity and God by focusing on Jesus as high, Pure and, high and, and, yeah. and exalted. God alone, God only, but the uniqueness of our faith, I think, as, as Christians is that God is, has in Jesus become truly human as and, well and as truly divine. he is the bridge divine. and the mediator yeah. as a human being. That's right. I think a lot of people think of Jesus as being human when he was on earth during the incarnation itself and then he was, when he is resurrected in a sense of the Father, he's not human anymore. Now he's the exalted God mm. uh, with God and we, and we lose the uh, human connectedness, uh, but he remains human. Yes, this is a very profound uh, and important thing that our humanity has been uh, taken up into into God through Jesus, and our humanity is no lo- is uh, no longer um, apart from from Jesus. And so, this is a tremendously uh, important uh, thing to think out. And the implications continue to you know to multiply. I think as we as we ponder what this means. But certainly, part of what it means is that. Um, that my my human response to God is never is never uh, should and should never be seen in isolation from Jesus's accompanying me, and in His humanity. So, uh, this is the great theme of the Book of Hebrews that Jesus is our our High Priest who, in all things, knows what we're going through, as tempted as we are, and yet without sin. But He takes uh, He He knows what it's like to be human, and He. Uh, knows that from uh, the most deep place of what it means to be a human being uh, in terms of uh, all our human uh, frailty. And he, that is the humanity he has worn and recovered and then taken up to, to God. And that includes me and all of my awkwardness and my brokenness and my imperfections as well as my strengths. But that's been accompanied and that's what then I'm learning to offer back up to God. But not in a not in a, a way that's uh, uniquely set apart from, from uh, in, in some kind of a isolated uh, offering to God, but it's again is this communion, a communion of love with the with the, uh, we're one, the human Jesus. We're yeah. one with Him as He is mm-hmm. one with the Father, and He, He's. Uh, there's no other way to be human except to be human in Christ. We live and move and have our being in Him and not just as the yeah. exalted, resurrected one, which he is, but as, as the human being, the glorified human. Mm-hmm. Who and and even in his glory, I uh, remember those wonderful uh, words from Charles, or John Wesley's hymn, the rich wounds yet visible above and, and, and beauty glorified. Uh, even in his, uh, even in his uh, being exalted, he is, uh, uh, you know, the, his wounds are still visible. His, uh, his humanity has uh, not been discarded as being something extraneous to the incarnation, extraneous to, to the reality of God, uh, but it's been, it's been brought together again. This is the healing 
the bringing together of heaven and earth, where uh, God's will shall come and will shall be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus is the first fruits of all that. And he is, he's going to take all of creation with him. And he has done that. And he will do that. But uh, it's, it's, uh, it's an accompaniment now. And creation is, will no longer be cut off and separated from, from the Redeemer, from its creator and Redeemer. Reminds me of the, uh, one of the last scenes of Jesus in, in the New Testament or in the Gospels with the disciples is after his resurrection. Uh, he, they're out fishing and he's on the shore and he wants them to come and have breakfast with him. And this is the resurrected Christ. Just a very intimate and very physical meal. Yes. Yeah, and very physical. Eating, eating food, and this is part of uh, the sheer earthiness of our humanity, and this is included. You're working on a new book? Yeah, the, uh, well, the, the things we were talking about initially about uh, Mary and learning the meaning of her response is uh, this has been the great, uh, you know, one of the great challenges for me to try to make sense out of uh, encouraging discipleship, encouraging uh, others to grow and develop as a pastor, and then in my own journey to be faithful to Christ in a way that... Uh, um, becomes uh, and continues to be uh, healthy and real and not artificial and contrived in order to uh, earn approval from either others or one's congregation or, or from God, but rather comes out of a heart of uh, genuine response to the, uh, the good news. And so I start uh, with Mary, but um, I'm really trying to make sense out of what I see as a, a tremendous gift that C.S. Lewis in his writings has given the church about teaching people how to respond to God and how to, uh, in his instance, how to respond to literature. What is it about? Why was Lewis such a great reader? What was he, why was he so receptive that he could get to the very heart of what he was reading and pull out what really mattered? There's a, there's a, a wonderful uh, wisdom, I think, in his whole approach to literature, which I think he learned uh, at, and it came to him in this, his own journey of faith, where he learned as a, to recover a faith that he lost to the, to the should news. And he learned how to recover and re, uh, receive again the, uh, the grace of God uh, as, he, as he went through a very difficult time, you know, losing his mother to cancer as a, as a young boy, and then his father virtually uh, as well, because his father sends him off to boarding school, and he, uh, becomes, a, he becomes an atheist, you know, officially and so on. But... Uh, all the while, he's still trying to be open and exploring what life is about, but he had some, some relentless willingness to be open and to ask awkward questions of reality and of himself, too, and ask questions of himself. And, and eventually, this uh, leads him back to, back to faith. And, and applying some of those lessons, which he, as a world-class literary critic, wonderfully gifted reader, um, applying that then to, to learning how to be open and reading uh, of Scripture, our source book. Well, like so many, I'm a big fan of C.S. Lewis's writings, and so I'm looking forward to that. I hope it's published soon, and can't wait to read it. Well, thank you. Me too. I'm working away at trying to get it, uh, get it in a presentable shape. <laughs> You've been watching You're Included, a production of Grace Communion International.